Let's open our Bibles uh, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. We're going to hopefully, Lord willing, finish a chapter. We may not finish it today. We'll see how things go. All right, last week we began looking at this ninth chapter and just seeing how Jesus, being the Son of God, the Messiah, and certainly as such, he would have the power and the authority over all things, including things that we can't see and certainly over the things physical. And again, I'm just encouraged by that because the same God who said, let there be light, the same God who said, let there be all of the life in the seas and let them come forth and multiply and all of their wonderful intricacy. I mean, think of that. Just the, the, the things in the sea, the land animals. He brought it, he spoke it. And because he's God, everything that he created was just right. In fact, at the end of each day, at the end of each 24-hour day, what did he say? And he saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And when it's good, when God says something is good, it's because he made it. <laughs> that means that everything that happened was in its right place. Every, I mean, even the, the order of the way things are, are designed, he, he's, he's a genius. He's more than a genius. He's almighty God. And in showing that he has control over all things, we, we've been looking at this ninth chapter where Jesus heals people. And the Lord loves people. And it's not his design, it's not um, something that he wanted, that people would get sick, that they would have maladies, diseases. All of these things that we experience as people in a fallen world, even as born-again believers, we know that this body is going to perish. It's not going to be here forever. We're due for an upgrade, and it doesn't cost anything for us. This upgrade is everything that Jesus purchased for us. And so he came and he, he heals because he loves. Satan is the destroyer. He is the one who brings death and sickness and, and maladies. But it's not in God's heart to do those things. He allows those things now because we live in a fallen world. But it's not going to be that way forever. Do you know that Jesus is coming? Amen. Yeah, he is. He's coming. And I don't know about you, but I am really excited about the coming of Christ for the church. We will meet him in the clouds being transformed. I'm looking forward to that day more than any other thing on the earth and where our bodies will no longer feel sickness, will never die. Can you imagine that? No more indigestion after eating too much. <laughs> and so he, in, in chapter nine here, these four men, they bring their friend who is a paralytic and they they, they break up Peter's house. They, they see the throng of people there in Capernaum where Peter's house was. And so Jesus is inside the house and he's speaking and a multitude of people are there. And so these four guys decide, hey, we're going to get our friend healed. So they bring him up on top of the roof. They break through the roof and they lower him down right in front of Jesus. And I can imagine just Jesus going, you guys are really amazing. You love this guy so much that you're willing to tear apart Peter's roof, and Peter's probably fuming, perhaps, maybe not. And the Lord heals him. And more than just healing him, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God? Nobody can except for God. He's the only one who has the right to say your sins are forgiven based on his own merit. 
And so he heals this man and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And then we find in the very next section where we we come into contact with Matthew, this Jewish man who was a tax collector for the Romans, a very despised man at the time. And he goes into Levi's house and Levi throws a big party for him. And the religious people have a problem with that because he's fellowshipping, he's eating with tax collectors. That that alone is enough to get you uninvited for Christmas dinner. But sinners. Jesus is having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. These people we despise the most. The tax collectors, yes, because they, they, they exact more than what is needed and they pocket the rest of it. And sinners, we good Jews are not going to deal with sinners, especially because we're religious, thank you. And the Lord's like, what spirit are you of? He's not, he's not a respecter of persons. I love that about Jesus. He's not a respecter, meaning he's not partial to any one person, to any one people group. He loves everyone. Because we all have this malady called sin, and he came and he purchased, died on the cross for you and I, so that we could spend an eternity with him. And only God can pay the price for such an eternal damnation that we deserve. That's what I deserve. Does anyone here deserve eternal damnation? I do. Every one of us ought to raise, I mean, we don't have to, but every one of us ought to raise our hand because that's what I deserve. But Jesus gave us so much more. And he is God in the flesh. He is the healer. And so now, after this interview with Matthew, this tax collector, we get into verse 14, and it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." And while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And so Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around when he saw her and said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well that hour. So when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowds were put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. And certainly it would. 
a notable miracle had occurred. Another notable miracle had occurred. And remember last week we talked about miracles, how Jesus, whenever he would do a miracle, it was to often to support the thing that he was sharing, the, the word that he was sharing, his, his authority of who he was. Miracles weren't done just, to, uh, just for anything. They, they were for a purpose. And oftentimes it was to confirm the word of God. And certainly Jesus, being God in the flesh, saw the, the, the difficulty and the, the struggle of people who were struggling in their, in their maladies and their sicknesses and their diseases. And the heart of God is compassion. He, he has compassion on people. And you know, that's a characteristic of God that I, I'm asking God to give me more of, especially in the days that we live in. The Bible says that because iniquity shall abound in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. And I find my own heart at times, and perhaps you do too, where you find you're just getting cold. You find that you're just becoming uncaring, and things have gotten so uh, weird in the world that you've decided, you know, I'm just going to develop myself a little hole, and I'm going to crawl into it, and I'm going to spout out a bunch of stuff, and I just want people to leave me alone. And yet, isn't it funny? Actually, it's not funny. It's just interesting that it's a time like this that the church ought to shine the brightest. God would want us to shine bright for him in a very dark world. And I need that compassion. I need the compassion of God, especially when I see people who are in conditions that they brought about by themselves. They brought it upon themselves even. And isn't that true of all of us? Isn't that true of all of us? Before we came to Christ, all of the things that I got myself into was, were because of me. It's because of my poor choices, because of my sin issues. I put myself in a place where I just got clobbered every day. And was it God's fault? No. It was all my fault. It was all my fault. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ intervened in my life and in your life at a time when I, I don't know why he did it at the time he did, but I'm so glad he did because I was bound for hell. I was bound for hell. And Jesus, without me even knowing it, intervened in my life. I'm so thankful for him. And he does that in people's lives, and I love that about him. We don't even ask a lot of times, and he intervenes at different times in our life to see if we're going to receive. And he knows whether we're going to receive, but he keeps making these overtures to us to love on us, to show how much he cares for us. And, you know, there, there is a time when he, he continues to give these overtures and overtures and showing and demonstrating his love. There is, there is going to come a time that if we don't respond, then we will have made our choice for life without him. And he will give you your choice because he's God. Heaven will not be populated with people who don't want to be near him. Heaven is not going to be populated by people who don't want anything to do with him. No, it's going to be populated by people who love him and know what he's done for them. And if you don't want him now, what makes you think you're going to want him in heaven? I love when people say that. I'm going to live the way I want to, and then somewhere in the future I'll give my heart to Christ after I've made all my money, when I'm sitting on the shore of the, you know, the Caribbean somewhere. You know, I think I'll receive Christ now. Self, you've built yourself all this empire, and you've, you've got this nest egg, and now I'm just going to relax, and I think now I'll, I'll, I'll receive Christ. You know, if you have the opportunity for that, praise God. 
Because <laughs> some people don't get that opportunity. But give your heart to Christ because he loves you. So now notice in verse 14, it says, The disciples of John came to him saying, why do, the, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So the disciples of John here that are mentioned are those of John the Baptist, not the author of the Gospel of John. This is speaking of John the Baptist. Why are we fasting and your, and, and your, your disciples aren't fasting? We know that fasting was often done during times of mourning. In the Old Testament, during the, days, uh, or the, the Day of Atonement, Due to national sin, mourning was uh, a part of that, and they would fast at that time. We know that in the Old Testament, fasting was also done for direction and discernment. We learn that in Ezra and certainly in Esther when she said to all the Jews, fast for me for three days because I'm about ready to go into a Hazarus, (laughs) into Xerxes, (laughs) and he hasn't called me. I'm just going to barge right in to make supplication for the Jews, and if you don't pray for me, I'm toast. And so it was like that. But there are other reasons to fast. In the New Testament, we find that there, we can fast when we're seeking to be loosed from a bondage or interceding for someone else to be loosed from a demonic oppression or even an evil spirit. We see that in the New Testament. And we can fast for those things today. And certainly when we're seeking the Lord's will and direction for our lives, these are all valid reasons to fast biblically. Losing weight is not a a means, a biblical reason to fast. Now, you may fast, and they say it's actually good for you to do that. Periodic fasting is actually pretty good. But when you fast biblically, there's a reason for it. It's not just to slim my waistline, which, as you can see, needs some slimming before I go to Florida in December. Um, Actually, I'm not even concerned about that. Um. But fasting, we spent quite a bit of time on that um, on October 2nd. And I would encourage you to get that teaching because we went into more detail on that. But just in passing, just this idea of why we fast. And so his disciples, John's disciples, are asking his, you know, Jesus and his disciples, why, why, are your, why don't you guys fast? And notice in verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Yes, the days when the bridegroom, Jesus, the bridegroom, and the disciples, the friends of the bridegroom, you and I, friends of the bridegroom, there's coming a time when Jesus would be taken away from his disciples. And we know that he's in heaven, but he would be taken away. His crucifixion, his burial, and then finally ascending into heaven Jesus would be taken away from his disciples, the bridegroom taken away. And then, he said, then they will fast. And that's why I encourage you to fast and pray as you feel led. At times, you don't have to tell anybody. Maybe fast for something that's going on in your, in your own life. Maybe a sin issue that you're dealing with. Maybe you're mourning over something. Maybe you're Asking the Lord for his will and discernment about a, a, a decision you have to make. In the next two verses, in 16 and 17, 
Jesus will be drawing a, a contrast between the Old Testament under the bondage of the law and he's going to draw a, a distinction between that and the New Testament, which we know is we are under grace by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Notice what he says in verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. I remember when I was little, my, uh, my brother and I, you know, we grew up in Flint, Michigan, and very difficult area to live in back at that time. And we would get holes in, in our clothes, and my mom would put patches on our jeans because we would bear holes in them, and she'd put these patches. But it, it was really just a Band-Aid because before long, the new patch, because it had more durability and was more uh, solidly put together, um, when she would put that patch over it, it would just basically tear away within maybe a week or two or less it would just tear away because the old jeans on the other side of the, you know, where the rip was, it wasn't as durable as the patch was. So it was just a band-aid, really. It really didn't fix it for too long. But this unshrunk cloth that Jesus would be speaking of would be the New Testament grace. New Testament grace by Jesus and his shed blood on the cross and this old garment is really the rudiments of the law of the Old Testament. And what does it tell us in 2 Corinthians? I love what Paul says here. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Or literally, a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have, come, have become new. And see, that's what we've experienced. We... Those of us who are Christians, we've experienced this new life, this new birth, and it is not compatible with the old life. Just as Jesus is drawing a distinction between the old law and the rudiments of living under the law versus the New Testament, living under grace by his shed blood on the cross, there's no compatibility between the two of them. In fact, in Galatians, Paul said this to the Galatians. He says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scriptures has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by what? The law or by faith? By faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the law had a purpose. But we don't live under the law. Does that mean that we throw out the Old Testament? No, we don't throw out the Old Testament. Jesus... Uh, he uh, fulfilled the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that you throw it out. Is it still wrong to, um, you know, thou shalt not kill? Is it still wrong to kill? Yes. Is it still a sin? Yes, it is. Is it still wrong to commit adultery? Yes, it is. Is it still wrong to commit false witness, to, be, to lie, to perjure yourself? Yes. Is it still wrong to covet your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's lawnmower, that really nice green one with the yellow seat? I've got one of those push mowers, but I look over across the street. I see my neighbor. He's driving. He's got earmuffs on. He's listening to music, and, and I'm over there pushing this thing. But I don't covet it. 
But are those things still wrong? They are. And they're still wrong today. It doesn't mean that they've been abolished. They've been fulfilled in Christ. Now we can receive this new nature, the Spirit of God indwelling us if you're a believer. And now we live as a new creature because we truly are. This old nature has been dealt with. That old nature is buried in the grave. Yet the new nature that Jesus gives us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I am now a new creature. And boy, I knew the moment that Christ came into my life. Do you remember that? Just the weight of sin off of your shoulder and the freedom in your heart knowing that you'd been forgiven. When I knew I didn't deserve it, there was nothing I could have done to deserve it. And yet I had this experience of being filled with him and this love and this amazing grace and amazing compassion, amazing forgiveness. Oh my goodness, I still literally weep when I think of it sometimes just to think of what he has done. And I could not have deserved it. The new birth. In Romans, Paul would go on and say says, uh, to the Romans, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth, notice, may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, notice, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's very true. It makes me aware of my sin, and that draws me. It brings me to Christ, sort of like a delivery man. Sort of like right now when the Prime, you know, Amazon Prime shows up at your door. They're just the delivery person. They're like delivering you. Here's the mess. It's like the law condemns you, it tells you what's wrong with you, it hands, it picks you up and says, Ooh, that is ugly. What a mess that here, you take it. And he gives it to Jesus, and Jesus says, that's fine with me, because that was the purpose. That was the purpose, to draw me to Christ. Notice what he goes on, and he says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so that's really what it is. He is the one. And he's drawing this distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was a tutor to bring us to Christ. But now that we're here, it doesn't mean that we don't follow those things. It doesn't mean that we don't study the Old Testament. That's why I encourage you to join us on Thursday night. We're going through 2 Kings right now, and it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of history there. And there's a lot of learning for us there, too. And we see the, the you know, things in the Old Testament coming to life in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, excuse me. It's the Bible. The whole thing is good, right? So verse 17, he says, Nor do they put new wineskin into um, old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. And this is true because the the idea here is that... uh, if you put new wine into old wineskins that had already been stretched out and have become brittle because they've been used so much, 
the gases and the fermentation process inside that old bag is going to, it's going to, the bag is going to get brittle and it's going to get hard over time and it's going to cause the skins to expand. You put new wine in an old wine skin, that process is going to cause that skin to just, and especially if it's closed up tight, those gases, that process of fermentation is going to break that bag. It's going to cause it to leak at the very least. But new wine, the new birth, and the grace given to us by Christ on the cross, the indwelling spirit, needs to be in new wineskins. A complete new thing, becoming a born-again believer. What did it tell us in Matthew? Jesus says, do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle of the law will by no means pass from it until all is, all is fulfilled. If those who were bound up by the, the, the law, like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if they were willing to receive Christ's offer, do you see, of forgiveness and new life through his atonement, they too would have become new wineskins, but they refused. They, they were stuck under the bondage of the law because they believed in their acceptance by God was based on their performance and the law. And Jesus said, no, it's not. It's based on my grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It was always about the internal, but isn't it true we're always so easily uh, seduced by the external because you can do that very easily. You can fool everybody. You can fool yourself. You can deceive yourself and deceive others by going through some kind of outward motions. And that's usually what we do when inside we are not feeling the right thing. We, we typically are great actors and actresses, but God knows the difference. Right? What does it tell us? I just quoted it in Ephesians. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I can't earn it. Do you see the difference? In order for this new wine, the Spirit of God, to come into my life, it needs to come into a new wineskin. It needs to come into a person who is uh, prepared and ready and and waiting and, and willing to no longer be the kind of person that says, well, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this in order for me to be right with God. No, God says, just come and see if the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even today there's a lot of religious people in the world that think that because of their performance that somehow God has to accept them. And he will not accept them unless the Spirit of God is in them. That's what makes you a Christian. It's not based on how much you go to church or how much you've given or what church you go to or how, how often you go into. The Lord is only going to see his Spirit in you or not. And that is the only prerequisite to heaven is the Spirit of God indwelling you. Do you have the Spirit of God indwelling you, or have you just been going through the motions like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, making a, a show of things, but inside there's really no reality at all? It's just me trying to do my best and, and you know, hoping for the best, making better decisions than the guy down the street. No, it's not good enough. There are some very moral people in the world that would put some of us to shame, and they have no relationship with Christ whatsoever. That's amazing, isn't it? But it's true. You know, they would look at the Christian and say, I can't believe you do that. 
I don't do that. And they may not do that. And yet, on the day of judgment, the one Christian who is still being sanctified is in glory, and the other one's arguing at the great white throne, arguing with God. But what about him? He called himself a Christian, but I saw him light up with a cigarette. And God is going to go, but he's professed me. Yeah, but he's smoking a cigarette. Well, is that a, is that a sin? Is that going to keep him out of the kingdom of God? No. It's not going to keep you out of the kingdom of God. Well, he had a glass of wine every now and then with his wife at night. He's going to go straight to hell. Well, he believes in me. He's going to be he's going to go into heaven. But he drank, Lord. Yeah, but he wasn't blasted. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, all these things are good to stay away from for the obvious reasons. But what's going to get you to heaven? Is it your performance? Certainly, I want to grow in, in righteousness, and I am, and so are you, as God is working in us, this, his sanctifying work by his spirit. That's the most important thing. The most important thing. So notice, we get to verse 18, and between these two verses, verses 17 and 18, there were 41 different events in the life of Jesus Christ that took place. 41 different events that occurred. So there's some time that has transpired between verses 17 and 18. But immediately prior to verse 18 was what we read a few weeks ago where uh, Jesus was crossing over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And remember, the wind and the waves were keeping him, uh, were boisterous, and he calmed the sea. And remember, he went over and he cast out the demons from the two men and, and, and invented deviled ham in the same process. Remember that process? Remember that event? And notice what it says in, in Matthew 8. So right prior to verse 18 was that event. And, and just, I'm going to go back to verse 32 of Matthew 8 uh, because that was the event that occurred right before what we're looking at. And there's a reason for this. But notice, Jesus said to them, uh, to, the, to the, the, the demons in the swine, he says, go. And when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the hill to the place and perished in the water. And then those who kept them fled and they went away into the city, told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and they, they picked him up on their shoulders, and they said, what a great guy. No, they, they didn't do anything like that. It was just the opposite. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now, go right into verse 18 now from that. And it says, while he spoke these things to them, Behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Does that make sense to you? It really ought not to. <laughs> because uh, Jesus, remember, was on the east side of the lake at the time of this exorcism of these two men. And then in uh, chapter 8, verses 18 through 34, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, um, going right into verse 18 uh, may not make sense uh, directly when you look at it. But if we look at the parallel passage of this account, it will make a lot more sense. Do you understand what I mean by a parallel passage? 
Remember in, in, in the Matthew's gospel, there are many different events, and, and Matthew has his reasons for putting them there and the order in which he's putting them in, and they're not necessarily chronological at all. But these different events in the life of Christ, they're also mentioned in the other gospels, and the other gospels may give a little bit more information about what was happening when something was happening. And so when you read the gospels, try to cross-reference that, and you'll see them often in your Bible the parallel passage of that and other gospels. Read it because you'll find a much, you'll find a little bit more information and you'll have a little bit understanding. Now, this verse actually, the parallel passage of what we're looking at in chapter or in verse 18 right now, here in this chapter, makes a lot of sense because if I read it to you and then we go right into verse 18 here, it'll make complete sense to you. Because you don't know where Jesus was in verse 18 when it says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him. Well, we were just talking about something completely different. Well, there was 41 different events that happened in between there. But notice what it says in the parallel passage in Mark. It says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side. So do you see what happened? He's over there ministering to the, the demoniacs, and now it tells us in Mark, the parallel passage of what we're reading right now, it says that he was over there, and he crossed over by boat to the western side, to the other side, and a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea, and behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, and this is Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. In other words, he had just uh, cast out those demons on the eastern side of the shore, and now he's coming over to the other side toward Capernaum, toward Gennesaret. And while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler, who now we know from Mark's gospel, chapter 5, verse 21, is Jairus. He came, and notice what Jairus did when he came and he saw Jesus. He worshipped him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. This idea of worship, it literally means, have you ever, guys, have you ever been eating like a hamburger and you're, you're uh, sitting outside and your, hamburger, your hands got grease and cheese and ketchup all over it and you, your hand is off to the side and your dog comes up and licks your hand? Well, this is similar to that. It literally means when you worship, it means to fawn over uh, the, like a dog licking his master's hand. In other words, to prostrate himself. And, to, and this is what this man did. He fawned over Jesus and just out of humility and brokenness. And notice the faith of the man. He knew his daughter was dead. And yet he knew and believed that Jesus could raise her if he so chose. And I love this because true faith seems to be irresistible to God. It seems to be irresistible to him because it puts our confidence and our trust in him 110% and nothing in us at all. And he loves to respond to situations like that. Where the man is just like worshiping him and like, Lord, my daughter, she's dead. But I know that if you come and you lay your hand on her, she will live. Notice the confidence that he had in him. And it was irresistible to Jesus. It was irresistible. He, it's almost like he could not escape this man. He couldn't leave him. He's like, oh my goodness, my dear brother. To hear your love and compassion, to hear your confidence in me, I, I, I can't not heal your daughter. I must come. I must come. And isn't that what faith is? The Bible says that faith 
is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for, you hope for it, it's not in your grasp yet, but yet there's evidence, even though you don't see evidence, there's evidence in your heart that it's going to come to pass. That is what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. I'm hoping for it. I don't have it in my hands yet, but yet there's evidence in my heart that God is going to do it. Isn't that what the guy did? That's what he did. It wasn't happening yet. His daughter was still dead, but he says, Lord, I know that if you just come and lay a hand on her, she will rise. And that was just too irresistible to Jesus. And he went. And, uh, you know, isn't it true that it's oftentimes after we've exhausted all of our earthly resources that it's the Lord who shows up and saves the day? Oftentimes, you will exhaust all of your human resources, and this happens financially often. We, we exhaust all of our finances, and then we finally, at the last, oh, I'll just, I guess I'll just pray. I'll, I'll just, you know, for heaven's sake, I'll just, all right, I'll pray. <laughs> and then the Lord comes through after the prayer. And I almost wonder sometimes, the Lord's going, hey, why didn't you come first? Instead of maxing out your visa. And then combining the balance on that on your other MasterCard and rolling the balance over onto another credit card. Anybody done that before? I was the king of rolling balances before I got saved. Had the system down. Boy, I was good at it. Exhausting all your resources instead of going to the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. (laughs) Come to him first when you have an issue. Don't wait. Come to him And oftentimes, your need will be provided from right within the body, oftentimes. The body ought to do that. We ought to help each other when we can, when we're made aware of it. So Jesus arose, verse 19, and and followed the, the Jairus, and so did all of his disciples. So his disciples are going to be now the eyewitnesses of these things. And remember this, that the Gospels are eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said and did. It wasn't, don't listen to your smart college professors who got the PhDs after their name and saying, well, uh, all this stuff was just handed down little by little over time, and somebody heard this story, and then they passed it down, and then they left something out, and then the story gets completely changed by the second or third person that hears it. No, that, that, that was not. See, they don't even know what they're talking about. When it comes to the Bible, <laughs> the professors of this world, unless they're in uh, a really good school, they have no idea what they're talking about. But yet they walk around, yes, I've, I went to Oxford and I know exactly what's going on. Are you kidding me? You don't even have a clue of what the Bible really says. You don't have a clue. (laughs) Don't have a clue. These were eyewitness accounts, and I'll prove it to you. In Luke chapter 1, what did Luke tell his benefactor before he wrote this gospel? He dedicated it to Theophilus, this lover of God. It says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand, this is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Inasmuch as many have taken into hand and set in order a narrative of those things which have been fully uh, had been fully uh, fulfilled, excuse me, among us, just as those who from the beginning were what? They were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, delivered them to us. And it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Yes, 
eyewitness accounts were delivered to Luke, and he wrote, and that document has been preserved, and it's in our lap right now as we speak. There's no handing down documents and over thousands of years, and they get changed in the process. Don't believe any of that nonsense from the, the piled high and deep people. PhDs. And there's nothing wrong with a PhD. Some of you have PhDs in here, and don't take offense to that. But I'm talking about liberal theologians. Try to subvert your faith. And yet the Bible makes it very clear. Believe God and not man. Amen? And again, I'm not against education. I'm a product of, you know, I went to batch, you know, went to four-year college and then went to a, a, a graduate thing. I've been through that, and it really didn't do me a great deal of good. It got me up here, and I think that's what God's plan was for me. Just get me in Rochester, because he had a plan for my life. I don't even know it at the time. But notice, and suddenly, uh, as he's on his way to Jairus' house to lay hands on this girl, suddenly, so he is en route, and suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came in from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, if I, only I may touch his garment, I will be made well. And again, notice the faith of this woman. She was content just to touch the hem of his garment, believing that all that was necessary was that, was that for her to be made whole. Now, the Jews in those days had a fringe or a tassel that they would attach to the four corners of their garment. And Numbers tells us again uh, about this. Um, and so uh, we're not going to, uh, well, let's just read it. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Moses. This is Numbers 15 saying, speak to the children of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined and that you may remember and do all the commandments and be holy for your God. I, the Lord, am your God I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So this tassel or this fringe was there for at least two reasons. First, to identify them as a Jew and as a member of the chosen people, no matter where they were. And to remind them every time they put that garment on or they remove that garment that they belong to God. And that blue thread speaking of the heavenly origin of Jesus. They would put that blue thread in. So she comes and, and she touches this thing. And do you understand that this woman, well, let's just get into it, verse 22. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that very hour. In the parallel passage of this in Mark chapter 5, it says this. It says, Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up. So evidently she had been hemorrhaging every day for 12 years to, to some extent at some frequency. And immediately when she touched him, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing, notice this, it doesn't tell this in Matthew, but it tells us in Mark's gospel that he, he, um, he immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, "'Who touched my clothes?' And as Jesus, his disciples, who are very helpful, 
They say, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? Everybody's touching you. Ah, but there was one who touched me with a different, in a different way. All of those are just touching me because they wanted to, you know, just to be associated with me. But this woman, out of her great need, she touched me out of faith. And Jesus knew the difference. He knew the difference. And he looked around and he said, who touched me? He looked around and saw her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And here this woman is at great risk because a woman who had uh, an issue of blood for 12 years was continually unclean. Even her presence being there among the crowd, they didn't even know it. But had they known it, they would have all kind of went around her like this, you know, because they don't want to be, you know, defiled by this woman who's had an issue of blood for 12 years. And, you know, you can, we're not going to go there, but in Leviticus chapter 15, you can read about just all these things about uh, the, the, the discharge of blood and, and the different things that they had to go through. It was a pretty tedious process, and this woman was very familiar with it. She was very lonely, I'm sure. And yet she's like, you know what, I'm going to lay it all on the line here. You know what, I, 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 and, and I, I was, I'm thinking in her mind, she's thinking, if I just touch his garment, then I'll be made whole. And if I don't, then, then let them kill me for touching the master. Let them kill me for, for defiling everybody in my presence. Just let them stone me. It'd probably be better anyway. I'm, I'm sick of living like this. Nobody wants to be around me. I have to be careful in everything I sit on, everything I do. I have to, you know, everything is just a constantly, it's always, every, the laundromat's packed. I have to clean everything. Nobody wants to be around me. She's like, you know what? Have you been in a desperate state like that? Where you're just like, you know, I'm going to go for it. I don't care what happens. It's all, I'm all in and I'm going for it. And if I perish, I perish. It reminds me of Esther going before Xerxes. This is it. If I'm discovered, they're going to stone me because they know about me. And of course, there was no stoning that day because Jesus looked back at her and he said, woman, your faith has made you whole. And she knew immediately that her issue of blood had been healed. I love that, don't you? The lonely, lonely people love Christ. He's never too busy for you. And I like that because when all of my friends, and I don't have many, but when all, you know, and especially before I um, came to Christ, I mean, friends desert you. They say things behind your back. They hurt you. But there's one who will never leave you, one who will never betray you, and that's someone I I love dearly because I can't be hurt by him. And even when he allows me to go through difficulty, I know that he's doing it for a reason. And I invite him to do it. Because I need to be changed. I need to be changed and, 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 and transformed into the image of Christ. And that very rarely comes except through suffering oftentimes. So as I experience suffering in my life, and you do too, don't be taken aback by that. You're just entering into the sufferings of Christ, just like Paul did. He goes, I would rather boast in those things and my infirmities than all of my degrees and all of my accomplishments. All that stuff is like dung to me. It's, it's meaningless compared to 
And notice when he says, be of good cheer, your faith has made you whole. The woman was made well that hour. And I believe that because of what Jesus said here, that it wasn't even necessary for her to have touched his garment. She could have been healed by her faith in Christ alone, but there was something about touching his hem, something about grabbing those tassels and, and, and touching them. It was a contact point, if you will, for her healing. It wasn't necessary, I believe, because her faith was already there. She just needed something to associate with it, something to grab onto in a sense. But the faith is what did it, not the fact that he, she grabbed the tassel or the hem of the garment. And we see this in the New Testament after the ascension of Jesus. We see it in Acts chapter 5, verse 12. It says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of them dared join them, but the rest, or the people, esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities, bringing sick people and those that were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. If just the shadow of Peter walking by would overshadow me, I'd be healed. And, and when they were healed, is it because Peter's shadow had something intrinsically about it? No, it was the fact that those people realized there's something about this one that he believes in, and I believe in him too. My faith is small, it's insignificant right now, but it's growing, it's a mustard seed, and I'm going to believe in him. And when they did, they were healed. Their faith made them whole. Peter's shadow, God used it. But what about in Acts chapter 19? It says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the disease left them, and evil spirits went out of them. Was there anything intrinsically holy about the handkerchief that came from his body? No, but it was a contact point. It was something where somebody who had faith said, You know what? And you know what? Aren't you glad that God doesn't need a bunch of spiritual giants? He takes a mustard seed of faith that's still growing, that's still in its infancy, and he will take whatever is there, and he will blow on it, those little embers that are just very small, very faint. Have you ever done that when you're building a fire out camping? You know, you take your little magnesium stick and your striker, and you're doing this, and finally you get a couple leaves going, you're... and the next thing you know, you're, you're building a fire, and then the guy next to you just comes and pours lighter fluid on the wood and lights it, right? But... <laughs> There's this little flame that God is okay with. He's like, I'm so glad there's just a little spark, and I'm going to bless it. And you know, God does sometimes unorthodox things, according to us. It doesn't, val- it doesn't invalidate his word. It doesn't go against the word of God. But sometimes he does these things, and we just scratch our heads going, why, Lord? Why, why would you do that? Because now we have televangelists, you know, who are walking around like Elvis on the stage, you know, with the thing on their head, and they wipe the sweat off their brow, and then they're throwing it into a, a bag, and then somebody's cutting it up into little pieces and sending it out through the mail. If you just, let this, if you just touch this on your body, you're going to be healed. And plus, you're going to get a check in the mail for $10,000 if you would just give your seed of a thousand dollars right and you see this kind of chicanery going on in the church and is it the thing no it's and god can use any of that i guess but and then people their faith is is weak it's small but god says you know what oh my goodness 
Your faith is in me. It's not in the guy with the red suit. Can he do that? He has. But he quickly gets that person's eyes off of the preacher and onto him. That's the difference. God is a God of love, and he takes these small things, our small little tokens of faith, and he blows upon them, causing those embers to become brighter and brighter. He wants to encourage our faith. So when Jesus, verse 23, came into the ruler's house, and he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, and this is funny, it's actually not funny, it's just an interesting thing to do. In the Middle East, they would often hire mourners to come at funerals, and I've seen this in Israel. And, and, and what, it's a strange custom, and, and one famous English pastor uh, said this about uh, this particular thing in the scripture today. He said, professional mourners were hired to make as much noise as possible, and their weird performances made the burden of death unbearable. Ancient writings attest the fact that, writing, that professional mourning included three main characteristics. Music supplied the flute players, the, tear, the tearing of garments, and the incessant loud wailing over the body. Throughout the Middle East, some of these customs still remain. And then he goes on further and he says, concerning the tearing of garments, there were 39 different rules and regulations how garments should be torn. The tear was to be made while you are standing uh, standing, torn to the heart so that the skin was exposed. For a father or mother, the rent was exactly over the heart. For others, it was on the right side. And it must be large enough for a fist to be inserted through. For seven days, the tear must be left gaping open. For the next 30 days, it must be loosely stitched so that it could, be, uh, could still be seen. And only then could it be permanently repaired. Because it would have been improper for women to tear their garments in such a way that the breast was exposed, a woman must wear the inner garment, or excuse me, must tear the inner garment in private and then reverse that garment so that she wore it back to front and then in public she must tear her outer garment. Many other requirements were expected from the mourning relatives and unless these were supplied, the entire family was criticized by their neighbors. Isn't that crazy? And so this is what Jesus comes into. He comes into this circus where people are freaking out and, 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 and they're hiring them to, to do this. And he's like, oh, please. Everybody out. <laughs> he said to them, verse 24, make room for the girl is not dead but sleeping. Now, some critics would say, well, she was sleeping and Jesus woke her up. No, she was dead. That's just an idiom that Jesus was using. Because he knew that her death, her physical death, wasn't going to be for much longer. So in his eyes, he's saying, oh, she's just sleeping. She's not dead. And notice they ridiculed him. Notice here that these people who were there mourning her death did not have the faith of Jairus. Jairus was the one who had the faith. Lord, if you could just come and lay your hand on her, she's dead and I know it. And my, my servants have told me that she's dead. You just come and lay But ah, but these mourners and these professional uh, criers... They ridiculed him. And it's proven that they had no faith because they ridiculed him. I believe that Jesus responded to Jairus' faith and not that of the noisy crowd mourning her death. And they ridiculed him. This literally means laughed him to scorn. Again, in the parallel passage to this in Mark chapter 5, 
It says this, beginning in verse 40, Mark 5, verse 40. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him. And we know this to be Peter, James, and John. Uh, Mark five thirty-seven tells us that. And notice, they enter where the child was lying. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. So he does this incredible miracle. And would you believe that there are actually liberal theologians who said, well, she was really just swooning, she was sleeping. And I don't know what the deal is with these guys, but I have a problem with them because they seem to want to disclaim or disprove every miracle in the Bible. And why would there be any amazement if, 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 there, was, if there was great amazement? There wouldn't be great amazement for just waking somebody up from a deep sleep. Would there And it wouldn't even be recorded for us unless it was a miracle. She was dead. Jesus knew that she was physically dead. In fact, remember when Lazarus was sick, they wanted to go and heal him immediately. He says, no, let's wait a few days. I'm going to make sure he's dead. And he's, he's wrapped up in the wraps, and he's, they got the spices, and they got him all wrapped up. He's in the tomb for three or four days. Then we'll go. We'll go then because I want to show you and prove to you that I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus was able to resurrect. And notice in verse 25 in our text this morning, it says, But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out over all the land. And yet in Mark's gospel, he told them not to tell him, tell anybody. But is that what they did? No, they, they spread it abroad. And, and it's great news. It's hard to keep really good news under wraps. Have you noticed that? If you've got really good news, have you ever been around somebody like that? They're, they're, they're sworn to secrecy by somebody in your family. Don't tell them this because, you know, they're going to flip out. And, you know, and then the person is around the person. And they're like, there's something i got to tell you. No, I can't tell you. What is it? I'm going to be thinking about it all day. What happened? I can't tell you. All right, I'll tell you. Have you ever, has that ever happened to you? And then you finally cave in and you're like, oh, you just spill the good news and you ruin the whole thing for somebody else. It's hard to keep good news under wraps, isn't it? Especially really good news. Really good news is hard to keep quiet. So why did Jesus keep it quiet? And we're going to end here in just a few seconds. Um, why did he keep it quiet? And again, this is just conjecture on my part, but I'm going to share with you what I believe. Why did he... And, and, then, and you'll see as we go through the rest of this next week, there's a common refrain. He would do something and then he would say, don't tell anybody now that I did it. Now, why did he do that? Well, perhaps he wanted to be able to continue to minister under the radar. His mobility was getting restricted. The more popular he became, the more resistance he got from the religious Jews. It became hard for him to continue to go from village to village when people were spreading things. He would have much rather gone really under the radar and just ministered to people quietly without all the press and without all of the you know, CNN and Fox News there. He would have loved to have done that. 
And perhaps Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come. Yes, there was coming an hour when he would be very clearly manifested before Israel. Do you remember what day that was that he clearly manifested himself before the people, of, before the Jews and before the world? It was that day when he rode in on the donkey. I think it's Matthew chapter 21. That day that was prophesied to the day came in and he manifested himself. That was the day that he was waiting for. Until that day, he would have much rather just kept things under wraps. And, but Jesus, all the while, was just slowly throttling his way with his time and with things, trying to keep that from exploding and keeping him from ministering as much as he could. He knew that there was a short period of time that he had left, but soon it was going to be going away. And he wanted to touch as many people as possible because that's the heart of God. He wanted to minister to as many people. And see, that's what we ought to do. Taking the time that we have, we don't know how much time is left. We know that we live in the last days. I believe we're in the end of the last days. And why do I say that? Again, because of all of the, the hallmarks of things that the Bible has been telling us about for a few thousand years now. Those things are getting very, very interesting and they're all starting to line up and get really cozy with one another. And it is alarming, but it's something that God knew was going to happen. And see, as a result of that, what do we, the church, do? Do we um, stay in our hole like I spoke about before? Do we, do we dig a hole and, 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 and you know, go up in some place and hide away in our cabin on the hill and, and let the word, world go to hell in a handbasket? And let our heart grow cold and angry? Or do we pray and say, Lord, I want a heart like yours. I want to have the compassion that you had. I want to go out and still continue to minister while there is still time. Because, folks, the, the, the curtain is slowly going down. The sun is slowly fading on this earth, on this time of the church. The sun is slowly going down, but it's going to arise again. And that's the good news. And people need to know that time is running out on this side. They need to make the decision. They need to examine the things that we've been talking about, to examine the word of God. Are these things true? Of course they are. We've been talking about them. God has told us about them a few thousand years in advance. The things in the book of Revelation were written to us in the last, you know, at the end of the first century. And now 2,000 years have gone by and these things are coming very eerily close together. Does everybody follow me? That is why. God loved you to save you at the time that he did and now he wants us to go out and minister to others. Folks, I just want to end with this. I want to encourage you to really brush the dust off of us, myself included. Let's brush the dust off ourselves and get about that. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to talk to people about Jesus. Don't be afraid to ask your neighbor. Bring them to church. If you like coming here, bring them here. All of these chairs should be filled. The chairs out in the fellowship hall should be filled in every church. Let's do our, let's do our job Let's go out and tell people about Christ. 
Tell them the good news. And then we can study the word together. We can get in the word together, be enriched. Our lives can be filled. We can be built up and then go out and share some more because the, the sun is going down on this age. It is going down. And we need to be about our Father's business. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Oh. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the blessing of, Lord, just being able to be here together and, and to hear the word of God taught and preached. Lord, build us up, Lord. Make us those ambassadors for you to a world that is dying, Lord, to a world where the sun is starting to set and it's getting low in the sky, God, and help us to be about your business. Lord, I pray that uh, for all of us here today that there, there, there be no condemnation. God, you, you don't force us to do anything. But Lord, out of love for you, we would be willing to do anything. And I guess that's the question we have to ask. Lord, am I willing to do whatever it is? Am I willing to open my mouth? Am I willing to be inconvenienced? Am I willing to go out on a limb, Lord, that somebody else might come to know you and be saved eternally, Lord. It's, it's so worth it. So, Lord, do that work in us, Lord. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters for their patience and their grace. Lord, touch their lives and bless them today, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.